You are listening to the Tech Chef Podcast. This is episode number 73, April 10th, 2023. This show is powered by Constrata.io. Leading with operations, solving with technology. Hi, this is Carl Osborne. And this is Meredith Sandland, and you're listening to Skip on the Tech Chef Podcast. Off-premise strategy, business continuity. How about a taste test of restaurant technology? drive through or curbside, mobile apps or AI. It's all on the menu, cooking up for the day. It's a recipe for success. You're in good hands with the tech chef. Make a plan to be your best. Strategize with the tech chef. Welcome back to the tech chef, where we're cooking up a storm of insights and strategies to help you succeed in the dynamic world of hospitality and food service technology. This is your host, Skip Kimple, and I'll be guiding you through a weekly feast of fresh ideas and innovative approaches that are sure to spark your creativity and boost your business. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, you'll find something to savor in our menu of expert advice and insider tips. We're passionate about the intersection of technology and hospitality, and we are committed to bring you the latest trends and breakthroughs that will help you stay ahead of your competition. So grab your apron and get ready to dive into a rich and flavorful world of knowledge. Our podcast is the perfect side dish to keep you informed and inspired on your journey to technology greatness. Hit that subscribe button and join us for a weekly injection of tasty insights and game-changing strategies. The Tech Chef is where the magic happens. Now let's get cooking. Joining the show today are two individuals who I am sure you have seen all over social media and at conferences if your business is restaurants and technology. Carl Arsborn and Meredith Sandlin join the show to talk all about their new book, Delivering the Digital Restaurant, The Path to Digital Maturity. Now, this falls on the heels of the must-read book from last year, Delivering the Digital Restaurant, Your Roadmap to the Future of Food. Meredith Sandlin is the CEO of Empower Delivery. She met with every major restaurant company, food tech company, real estate company, and venture capitalist investor who is exploring the online food revolution. In Empower Delivery, she found what she had been looking for, a restaurant tech company built from the ground up to service the on-demand consumer. Prior to Empower Delivery, Salen created and drove disruptive growth as Chief Development Officer at Taco Bell and COO at Kitchen United. Carl Orsborn is a global retail executive and board member whose experience spans blue chip companies, disruptive startup ventures, and restaurants. As COO of Juicer, Carl leads business development, partnerships, and operations for this innovative startup supporting the development of dynamic pricing capability for restaurants. At Kitchen United, Carl established the operating model and led operations and customer success for one of the country's foremost ghost kitchen providers. Carl and Meredith serve as advisors and board members at several food service and tech startups. 
They have been recognized as power players by Nations Restaurant News and Business Insider for their thought leadership in supporting restaurants to adapt to the challenges and opportunities offered through digitization, technology, and automation. Don't worry, we dig much deeper in conversation about things like converting third-party to first-party customers, the gig economy workforce, and even talk about the good and evil of artificial intelligence. probably both know these two from the books that they've released, and we have some exciting information to share with you today about their brand new book. Meredith, let's start with you. Can you give me a little bit about your background and kind of where you came from in the industry and kind of how you landed where you are today? Sure. So I started in restaurants by accident, as I think most people do. I got a call from Taco Bell asking me to come interview, and I met with the then CEO, Greg Creed and CFO Melissa Laura, and the two of them were such amazing people that I went to go work for them, even though uh, that had not been my plan to end up in restaurants. And once I got into it, I fell in love with it, as I think most people do. And I've been here ever since. Uh, I was the chief development officer at Taco Bell, built a whole lot of Taco Bells. And halfway through that journey, I thought, gosh, it's weird that we're building them next to malls when no one goes to malls anymore. That planted a seed, and that seed only grew when we tried to enter Manhattan. And I thought, gosh, it's weird that we're paying the world's most expensive real estate prices when 40% of the sales are going out the door delivery. If only there was a commissary that we could just deliver out of. Fast forward a couple of years, and I met the guys at Kitchen United who were doing exactly that. So I joined them and uh, developed the initial business model, raised the initial capital. And that is actually where my story intersects with Carl's. Yes, I'm starting to detect, detect a pattern here. So, Carl, that is a perfect lead into uh, your background. Yes. Uh, well, similar to Meredith, I had spent a large portion of my career in big company world, and I had spent 15 years in in C stores, convenience stores, and was running a 1,000-unit C store chain over here on the west coast of the U.S., uh, got out in 2018 from that, wanted to look, look for something a little bit more innovative, a bit more focused towards the future. Um, and a mutual friend of Meredith and ours introduced um, us to each other. And it was it was funny because I was went into the meeting wanting to speak to someone that had left big business and had got, us, got into a startup. And uh, Meredith started talking about these ghost kitchen things. And I thought, wow, this is, this is an interesting conversation. I, I don't know whether uh, the, this lady is going to be able to help me out too much, Skip. And funnily enough, after about 15, 20 minutes of Meredith telling us the same story she just told you a moment ago, I was like, wow, this makes so much sense as to why the industry is heading in this direction. So for me, I then very quickly agreed to come on the team of Kitchen United and help build out their operating model. And between Meredith and myself, we interviewed and met with various different folks across the restaurant world um, from the, the kind of technology innovators and uh, everyone attributed to the uh, the restaurant chain execs as well as independents. And a lot of them were talking about the challenges attributed to not just ghost kitchens, but just digital disruption. And when Meredith and I left Kitchen United sometime later, we um, we decided to write a book 
to try and help everyone understand what is going on. So we revisited some of those executives that we met. We've obviously made a few friends along the way and spoke to over about 100 or so and wrote uh, Delivering the Digital Restaurant, uh, Your Roadmap to the Future of Food. It came out in 2021. It became an international bestseller. Uh, obviously, perfect timing because now we're in the throes of the pandemic when every restaurant became a ghost kitchen, uh, when every restaurant had to embrace technology just to stay afloat. Uh, and from that, you know, Meredith and I um, have now spoken at events both here in the U.S. and further afield about digitization, about technology, about the excitement that every restaurant owner should have about off-premise. And the why was very much solidified in that first book. But we missed out something. We missed out something about the how. And so very uh, soon after the, the launch of the book, we realized, you know what, we need a, we need a bonus chapter. And so we went about writing a bonus chapter and skipped that bonus chapter became two chapters, then three. And then we realized we've got to write another book. Of and course. so the piece that we're at right now is the launch of our second book, which is Delivering the Digital Restaurant, The Path to Digital Maturity. And this is a playbook that accompanies the first. It's got lots of tips in it. It's got worksheets. And it's really helping restaurants figure out where they are on the path to digital maturity and what they need to do to be able to progress along it. I promised before we started recording, I was going to throw you softballs. I'm going to let one of you take this question because I think this is the biggest question out there. And I have debated it with many of my colleagues before. So whoever wants to take a stab at this question, go for it. What does the term digital mean in the restaurant industry? Well, I'll tell you what we say the digital restaurant is um, a restaurant that's digital is being where their consumers are, which increasingly are on their phone, on their computer, um, interacting digitally and, of course, um, migrating into a voice world, which is becoming heavily digital with things like GPT and voice AI. Uh, Restaurants really are forced as a consumer business to embrace the ways in which their guests would like to engage with them and the ways that guests want to engage are increasingly digital. Carl, anything you want to add to that? Uh, no, I think that's that's in the book. We have that definition in there because <laughs> a lot of people ask us that same question. What is a digital restaurant? And I, a lot of folks now must realize that it's not just about off-premise. It is about helping the guest experience the restaurant in every channel possible And that means you have to think about the ways in which you're not only existing digitally for when a customer is inside your four walls, but also for when they are perhaps looking to discover food, whether that be on the Instagrams of this world or the TikToks, as well as the marketplaces. Now, Meredith, you brought up something interesting, which I'd like to dig into a little bit more, and that's uh, AI. AI is big discussion, not only amongst our industry, but just on general news. You turn on TV and they're talking about AI and restrictions to AI and, you know, backing off on development. Where do you think the world of AI is headed? Oh my goodness. This is a hot topic of conversation at our house. My husband also is involved in artificial intelligence. So we talk about this every day. And I think, you know, the first thing I would say is most things that claim to be AI, of course, aren't. I'm, I'm guessing you share that perspective as a tech person. Yes. Um, but computers are getting increasingly intelligent in their generative capabilities and in their ability to program themselves, in their ability to uh, perceive what's going on in the world around them. And as they get better at those three things, they become closer and closer to 
you know, generalized intelligence. And I think what is most incredible is just as computing power gets cheaper and cheaper, uh, we are able to do things at scale and much more quickly than any human ever could. And that's exciting, right? Because it means that we can do all kinds of, you know, creations of campaigns and A-B testing that no human could ever do themselves on the marketing side. Uh, It means that we can enhance our operations. Um, It means that we can have a much better uh, understanding of how uh, automation can play a role, how um, ordering and dynamic pricing and inventory management can all be better than they are today. All that's very exciting. Um, But of course, the reason they talk on the news about maybe restricting it is that there could be a dark side too. And, uh, you know, my husband said to me this morning, I think the right analogy um, that he's heard is it's like when you take a new species and you introduce it to an ecosystem and it has unintended consequences. And sometimes those are good and sometimes those are bad. But even with the best intentions, you can't necessarily know what the unintended consequences will be. Well, we should all take our lessons from Jurassic Park because absolutely. (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) That's great insight on on your thoughts on that. And I completely agree. A lot of what's considered AI out there is not AI, especially in the restaurant side. That that term is used kind of loosely a little bit. I'm going to go back to your first book because if I'm listening to this show and I haven't read any of your books yet, I'm starting at book number one. Carl, what are some key takeaways the audience can gain from this first book? Well, hopefully we, we cover a lot of the digital ecosystem from the first book. Um, I think the one of the overarching intentions from the, the first book is to help restaurateurs realize that they need to dive in and they need to want to swim. <laughs> they need to dive in and they need to want to swim. And so that means how do they look upon the incrementality of off-premise? How do they look at determining whether a ghost kitchen is truly the right thing for their business? At what point and what juncture do they need to look and consider a virtual brand? And so we cover a number of different themes and really just help the reader understand what these things are, define them in very clear terms, but then also explain some of the best practice cases of those that are actually deploying them in practice and finding some success from it. So I'm going to have you stay on the on the topic just for a second, because I know one of the chapters was talking about delivery being the new drive through. Mm. Do you believe that still holds true for today? Yes, I do. Um, and I think it's even more pertinent today. Um, Meredith and I write for Nation's Restaurant News occasionally. And one of the articles we wrote about last summer was about throttling, uh, where restaurants are turning off their third party and first party channels when the restaurant gets too busy. Now, Part of that is because the operation itself, the back of house, hasn't been refit, if you will, to be able to cope with the level of demand that they're facing now from marketplaces and first party channels. And it's it's almost a good problem to have, isn't it? Well, can you imagine, Skip, if the QSRs today hadn't created the second make line, hadn't created the the pickup window, hadn't created the optimized processes to ensure that someone can get through a drive-through lane process within three to four minutes. If they hadn't have done that, the the, the drive-through channel for QSRs would nowhere near be as large as it is today. And I think the idea of putting that chapter in the first book was to say, look, we've been here before with innovation. 
And so this is a chance for you to think about how to remodel and rethink your business operation. And it's important because it's not necessarily about technology. It's about thinking about how do you want to run your business differently? And we, we continue that theme in the path to digital maturity as well. We continue to talk about how to identify capacity and to determine whether you've got a sufficient amount of capacity to grow your business further. And we even get, as we get closer towards the end of the book, to talk about, well, look, there's a point where you can't go much further. Once you get beyond, let's say, 40% of off-premise sales mix, the, uh, the language around incrementality doesn't stack up so well. So we kind of start talking about new types of ways of thinking about how a digital restaurant will exist and, and suggest that there may even be an entirely new category coming called the digitally native category that has the propensity and potential to be one of the largest growth areas of the restaurant industry in the years to come. Well, I guess this kind of plays into, uh, you know, as, as I was reading through some of the blurbs on, on your new book, you talk about um, digital disruption. And you brought up a couple different interesting concepts and technologies, Carl. Meredith, before you talked about dynamic pricing and Carl, you mentioned throttling. And I think those are, are two massive pieces to the struggles that restaurants are facing today. So let's start off with dynamic pricing since you brought it up. Where do you think and what do you think the value of that is? Where's, where's the power and how does a restaurant deal with that, that dynamic pricing? Let's start with the alternative, right? Restaurants are an extremely peaky business. Um, you know, if you think about pizza, you order it on a Friday night or Sunday during the game. You don't order it on a Tuesday at noon, right? It's a very peaky business and there's only a certain amount of capacity that can handle these peaks. And the way restaurants are dealing with excess capacity today, many of them are doing what, what Carl just referred to, which is throttling. That is to say they turn off they're typically third-party channels first. Um, then they might even turn off their first-party channels uh, in a digital sense. And it's it's kind of crazy, right? You would never close your doors and say, oh, we're just too busy with no explanation and not show up that day, right? Uh, a consumer would find that terribly confusing. You're there one day. You're not there the next day. How do they know when to find you? Uh, and because you would never do that in a brick and mortar sense, we argue you should never do that in a digital sense either. Yet the fact remains, the business is very peaky. So what dynamic pricing enables in a restaurant context is to pull back that demand when it's very, very busy by charging more or to accelerate demand when it's very slow by charging less. And it turns out the third parties are already doing this. I don't know if you've, um, Bet on DoorDash on a Friday night, you'll place an order and they'll say, get this delivery for $2 less if you're willing to wait, you know, an hour and a half instead of trying yes. to get it right now. <laughs> well, if they're doing it, why does that value accrue to them? It shouldn't, right? It should accrue to the restaurant itself. And I think dynamic pricing brings the opportunity for restaurants to benefit of that, frankly, just the way they always have, right? A happy hour in many ways is dynamic price pricing. A blue plate special is is dynamic pricing. So it's it's really not terribly different from what restaurants have done in an analog sense for many years. It's just digitizing that and bringing it forward into the current context that we have. And I think that's the trick is is getting the technology right to include it as part of your tech stack and make sure that that works flawlessly. It works to your business model, etc kind of plays in the same concept as throttling. Now, Carl, I saw you out at uh, Murtech recently, and I'm sure you, you looked at some of the vendors, especially in the Startup Alley that RTN had, 
And there's a company out there called Curbit. I remember when I first saw Curbit, I think it was last year, I looked at them after hearing about what their product was. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys are solving exactly what I've been yelling at all these third-party delivery companies and integrators to do. And they have a very interesting technique. Did you spend much time with them at all? Do you know much about that product? Yeah, I know know Kevin and the team over there. I think um, Kevin and Scott are creating a really interesting concept with Curbit because ultimately their, their product is helping optimize the, the bump along, along the KDS, right? It's helping use data to be able to understand where there are efficiencies to be found in the in the ordering process. And look, the, the reality is, as much as Meredith and I are big fans of the, the off-premise world and the potential it brings to restaurants, the guest experience today, Skip, still is not particularly good. There are countless amounts of issues when it comes to order accuracy or uh, guests receiving their food in the time that they expected it to come. And I think when you have products like Curbit out there, you're starting to see that um, if you can help the restaurant, if you can help use the, the the automation that comes and the analytics that come from using platforms like that, you can actually create a better experience, not just for the guest ultimately, but also for the kitchen because it helps them optimize their processes. It helps the back of house. And I think the overarching theme we're seeing around automation generally and just general investments in restaurants this year in particular is around back-of-house efficiencies and back-of-house automation. I think that is really a core focus uh, this year in particular. Now, obviously, that dining experience from the digital perspective, all the restaurants want to convert that third-party diner into a first-party customer. Do you have a secret method for doing that that nobody else has truly figured out yet? Well, we, uh, we love to talk about it in the, the second chapter of our book where we're talking about converting fans. Um, but of course, there is that component part of making sure the experience is great, first of all. So regardless of where the customer is joining you from, whether it be through a third party or through a first party, it's important that you've got a commitment that you can you know, be very proud of in terms of your ability to give some great food to a customer regardless of the channel. But once you have got that landed, once you're feeling confident about the, the operational fulfillment, having a first-party channel is, is kind of divided into two ways in our mindscape. The first thing is designing an interface which is seamless, which is frictionless, which has as many steps or if not fewer than what you might expect on a marketplace. You know, I, I use this term count the clicks quite a few times. And to give you an idea of what I'm referring to there, as a registered user on the the king of all e-commerce, Amazon, I can order an item today in about three clicks. As a registered user, on a DoorDash or an Uber Eats, I can probably order an item without any modifications in about five or six clicks. But for the average first-party platform out there, it might take somewhere between six and nine clicks for me to be able to actually order an item. So I put that to you because, for me, each of those additional clicks are a reason for a consumer who is thinking about food delivered and the convenience of it for speed more than anything else. And therefore they're thinking, well, if if, if this is less convenient for me, I might as well just keep going to the marketplace. And so in designing these first party interfaces, it's important that the process is frictionless and creates an experience for the guests that perhaps is differentiated from anything they could experience in a marketplace. And we refer to some examples in the path to digital maturity. And if you have that in place, then you can start talking about converting them. 
And converting them is everything associated to making sure your social channels are in place so that you're talking to people about ways to get act, um, get to active offers through first-party channels. It's about using your packaging in, and your leaflets that go out on your packaging in a way to draw customers in, perhaps through loss-leading incentive promotions. Um, and it's also about making sure that you're creating a connection to your customer so that you feel that you can understand who they are and they can understand who you are. And that can come through numerous different ways, but it's important to realize that there are so many different restaurants available for you to order online today. If you don't have an identity in the customer's mind, how on earth are they ever going to remember to pick up their phone and either download your app or to Google to find you? You have to find a way to be memorable, and that's really, really important. So we're talking about all these new marketing channels, these digital marketing channels, and some struggles that the restaurants have had around staffing these positions. Let's talk gig workers. Obviously, everybody is struggling with the labor force. Meredith, do we ever get back to the day of what the labor model used to be in this gig economy, or is it here to stay? Uh, No, I don't think we will. I mean, unless you have the government massively intervene and say that we want a different kind of... um, of worker, I don't think it will ever happen. And the reason is because gig working is great, not just for employers, but actually for the gig workers too. And I, I think, you know, the, the folks who are unhappy with gig working probably get a lot of attention, but I'll tell you when they passed the law in California, trying to control gig working, you know, who, uh, who flipped out first? the entertainment industry, because it's totally set up um, for 1099 working. um, And the entire industry is constructed around that. There's a ton of self-employed people. uh, And it turns out that a lot of folks really like working that way. They like the flexibility it brings. They like the um, increased pay that it brings, the control um, in terms of managing their own times and not necessarily having a boss to deal with. There's a lot of wonderful things about gig working that I don't think as a society we want to give up on. Now, could it be better? Could it be different? It could be. And how does it affect uh, those folks in particular hospitality industry who employ in a more traditional way? Um, It can be tricky, right? And so as you uh, as an employer, look at your own job offering. Um, one of the articles that we wrote for Speakerbox was about how to gigify your workforce and how to think about the things that are attractive about gig working and incorporate those into your hourly or more W-2 oriented positions um, as one option or as another to actually have some of your work be gig work. Um, as an example, if you employ delivery drivers as a high volume delivery restaurant, maybe historically you did it as W-2 workers, you might choose to employ your own gig workers on 1099 instead. Do you think the announcement today from McDonald's about them closing their office and kind of reevaluating their whole scenario? I, first of all, I, I was astounded by that. That's, that's a pretty big step. Is that an indication that that the rest of the restaurants out there are going to have to make a major shift as well in the very near future? Yeah. You know, um, having worked at a big restaurant company for a long time, I will tell you, I didn't spend a whole lot of time in the office, right? The, the restaurants are out in the field and the place we were building restaurants was out in the field. We were out near consumers and a lot of my time was spent traveling around our existing restaurants, traveling around places where potential restaurants should be 
and a good headquarters support team, a lot of the folks in there, that's probably what they're doing. So if you believe that you should be out where your restaurants are, where your consumers are, and you add on top of that, the fact that um, we have restructured our workforce to a great extent with a lot of folks working from home and preferring that when they are able to and their job allows, maybe we don't need as big of offices as we used to have. Carl Meredith, thank you so much for joining the show today. We could keep talking and talking and talking. I'm assuming the book is available as of today. It certainly is. You can uh, get a copy if you're a Kindle reader on Amazon. There's a hardcover, a paperback. If you want to go to Amazon, of course, uh, we've got an audio book on the, on the way if you'd like to have me read the book to you. Uh, but if you like first party channels, you can go to our website, deliveringthedigitalrestaurant.com. That's a great place to get uh, bulk copies of the book at a discount. Um, also tune into our own podcast, The Digital Restaurant, where we uh, come together twice a month and talk about the two ins and fro ins of the world of restaurants, digitization off premise. So uh, if folks would like to come over there, then we'd love to have uh, entertain them as well on our podcast, The Digital Restaurant. Both of you, thank you so much for joining the Tech Chef here today. Very insightful information. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. And we all look forward to reading this new book. Two solid books that have to be on your shelf. If they are not, make sure you make that happen. Great practical information to bring your restaurant into the digital world. After you finish reading these books, I know you'll thank me. If you would like to reach out to me or the show, you can do so via Everything Social at Skip Kimple or Everything at Constrata. This includes Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can always go to the website at skipkimple.com for all of the archive shows, including the show notes. And you can also hear these new episodes on the Constrata website at constrata.io. And of course, you can email me at skip.kimple at constrata.io. Next week, I have a CIO from a rapidly growing chicken concept that is expanding so fast, it's making my head swim. Think you know who it is? Want to learn how to create a tech stack that can be part of a franchise-based ecoculture that can handle that level of growth? Well, if you said yes, you better tune in next week, same time, same place. I know many of you are gearing up for Restaurant Leadership Conference, which is happening in a couple weeks. So as you start to prepare for your trip, always remember, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay hungry, my friends. And that's a wrap. I got you off in time, Meredith. One minute to spare. <laughs> you are efficient. I'm impressed. Wow. Amazing, amazing. All I right. know. And we talked about AI and gig working and working from home, all the things. Hey, we're, that, we're, we're hitting the big yeah. subjects here. Yeah. Hey, we might have to come back on again. I feel like we could talk for hours. I, yeah, I, I, I think you guys might. <laughs>